the scripture Ryan's going to preach today. It comes from three different passages. The first one is Exodus 20:13. You shall not murder. Next is Matthew 5, verses 21 to 24. You have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. And our third passage is 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brother. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And pray with me. Father God, we thank you for your word and that it is available to us. Thank you that um, we get to sit under the teaching of your word. I pray that you will speak through Ryan, that his words will fall away and your words will reign true in our hearts and in our minds. Prepare us to hear your word today, God. It's in your name we pray. Amen. We are in a series of messages where we've been, uh, that we call Law and Gospel. Um, and we've been looking at the demands, the fulfillment, and the responsibility of the law of God. We've, and what we've noticed is that the law has a huge part in the life of a Christian. That it serves a purpose to, to convict us of sin, to point us to Jesus, and to teach us ultimately how we ought to live in God's kingdom. And so we've been looking at that uh, for several weeks now. About This is our eighth week into that, and we're at the sixth uh, command. And... Um, and, and today, you know, you're probably thinking, okay, here's one I can finally get a little bit of relief on, right? You shall not murder. I mean, think about this. Only like 90% of us have probably committed murder before. There you go. You guys are picking up a little bit. That's good. That's good. And you're like, okay, 9 out of 10, which one? So, uh, so anyway, as you think about that, I want to encourage you not to check out. Uh, because this command is closer to you than you think. And Jesus shows us that. And we're going to see that more and more. I was reminded of this just last year. Our youngest daughter's been in preschool. She calls it scree school uh, for a few years now. And uh, early into the year, you know, she's, she's very conversational and uh, we'll have a conversation with anyone. But early on to the year, she had some conflict with one of her classmates in her scree school class. His name, uh, you know, uh, let's call him Tony. Um, and and in, in class, uh, you know, Tony had evidently, um, you know, done something to Maggie. He name-called, he scratched her, and, and she really had a hard time working through that and letting that go. So, you know, we worked through it. We, we had the conversation with the teacher, and she talked to Tony and Tony's parents, and everything seemed to be going good until about six months later, 
I'm like, hey, Maggie, or Mags as we call her, Mags, how was preschool today? Uh, and she said, preschool was not good because Tony was there. And, uh, and, and so we kind of went back and forth on that. And then other days she said, preschool was great. Tony was gone today. It was great. And, and, you know, and so it was just this kind of back and forth over the course of the whole year. We were trying to help her work through it, and we were trying to work through it. And, and uh, you know, we, we laugh at it, and it's funny, but um, it would be even more funny if it wasn't all too real for us, right? Because, because here's the deal. No matter if you're 3, 33, or 63, you know that pain. You know that pain that, that surfaces in your heart when someone hurts you. Or you hurt someone and they hurt you back. And Jesus knows that pain too. And he wants us to delve into that and lean into that pain today that he might bring healing and a life-giving spirit instead of a life-taking spirit uh, within us. And that's the, really the big idea of how we want to hit the sixth command today. It, it's this. Jesus has laid down his life so that we can be life-giving. So I've got four, just kind of four main points I want to look at on this. And so we'll dive into the first one. And it really has to do with the design of God to be a life-giving God to his people. So uh, if you want to flip over to Genesis 1, 20, 26 through 27, you can. I just want to look at a little bit about what creation says about life. And it's, there's this principle in the Bible that comes from the beginning chapters of Genesis uh, 126 and 27 that, that we call in Latin the imago Dei or the image of God. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? I'll read the scriptures for us here. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and, and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creepy, creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So this, the underlying principle of this idea of murder is the fact that, that God and God alone is the giver and the taker of life. That, that's not the role and responsibility of humanity, but that God is sovereign over that. And, and the truth is that humanity has value beyond knowledge because we were, we were the only creation, only thing out of everything that you created that actually reflects Him. And, and the, the, the fact of the matter is, is that Throughout history, we've seen different waves and, and seasons of life in the history of the world where some image bearers were elevated higher than other image bearers. And, and things have happened according to that. And, and now we're, we're even tempted today to think the same thing. And I'm not just talking about races. I'm talking about classes. I'm talking about people from different regions. All of these things is how sin creeps up into our lives. Is it tempts us to believe that Certain human beings, in fact, bear more of God's image than others. But the beauty of it is, is that there's no human being that, that bears more of God's image than another human being. In fact, there's only one that's born his image perfectly, and that's Jesus. And Jesus has come to redeem the image of God in you and I, and not only that image in us and in our identity, but as we see humanity as we see one another, as we live in community with one another, as we live as the church, God has come to even redeem that in us. And the image of God is like a kaleidoscope of diversity and complexity. Because why? 
It reflects God. God is complex. He's diverse. And, and that's why God's given us this command. Because he's called us to honor the dignity of image bearers because of the simple fact that we reflect God to the world. Now, as we dig into this command, I do want to just share a few nuances that we see from the scriptures before we delve into the heart of it. So I'm not going to stay here. I could preach a whole sermon about the ethics of the sixth command. I'm just going to hit on it for a few minutes and, and we can maybe go deeper at another time in this or maybe in your missional community you can this week. But this idea of killing versus murdering. So all murder is killing, but not all killing is murder. There, there are some instances in the scriptures that we see from God's word where God has, has, has prohibited someone to take another person's life for the sake of, of restoring the dignity of all of human life. Now, now, it's a mystery and it's complex. And even as I talk about these things, it's not cut and dry. It's, it's so complex. And so let me draw just a little bit of a distinction on this. That The, the Hebrew word that's used for murder in the Ten Commandments is this word uh, rasha. And it's, it's, it really means this, the unlawful taking of another human life. Uh, so it's, it's distinct in its usage in the Old Testament uh, because of that. So there are some situations where, where that, that's been prohibited in history. Situations like uh, just warfare. Uh, there are situations when you see in the Bible, maybe like in the book of Joshua, where you read about instances of conquest of Israel, where he's prohibited the, 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 the just killing of other people to happen. And we don't understand that, and it confuses us, but it's in the Scriptures. And we even have seen throughout uh, the history of the world that, that we can recall other moments that for the sake of the image of God in humanity, war had to happen. As painful and as problematic as it seems to us, it had to happen because of the brokenness in the world. It was the way that God executed justice. And, and to this day, it still happens. Now, I don't have time to get into what makes just war and what doesn't make just war. Maybe that's a, a dinner time uh, discussion for you tonight. I don't know. It might be a little heavy. Um, but then there are other situations like in Exodus 22 where there are situations of self-defense. So the scripture reads this in Exodus 22, 2 and 3. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there should be no blood guilt for him. So the person that, that takes that person's life because someone breaks into his house in the middle of the night. He's saying that, you know, you're probably not guilty of that because you couldn't see the motives of the person they broke in in the middle of the night. But, but listen to what the other side of this verse says. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt on him. So if it's daytime and you can see the motives of another person, they don't surprise you, then you can't just take that person's life. They have dignity even though they're doing something wrong. And so there are other options in those moments. And then, and then lastly, there, there are situations where uh, God-ordained government exercises capital punishment. So uh, you see this in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, and, but also in Romans 13, 4 that I want to recite for us real quick here. It says this, For a ruler is God's servant for your good. For, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear his sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So, so this is talking about our view of government, that God has equipped and empowered local, local and, and uh, you know, national and world government 
And he's put them in place for his purposes to execute justice in the world. Now, we could go on and on about the instances of justice that, uh, that, that in our mind were just and other times were, were not just. And, and maybe I'll hit on that a little bit here. But, but you know, where someone has, this is where someone has lost their life because of the reckless nature of, of, of their flesh and their, their sin and their being a threat to society. And we could look throughout history and see different moments and times of that. And, and the scriptures say that that, that that has to happen because of the sinfulness of the world. That the world would be chaotic if, there wasn't, if he wasn't executing justice through the means that, that he has set in place. But, but even in all the, the cases of killing and, and murder that we see uh, in, in life and in the scriptures, it's even more complex because of the injustice that, uh, that happens at times. And I was even reminded recently of a, a, the, the, the youngest person in the history of our nation to receive, you know, uh, a, a capital, an execution by capital punishment, you know, George Stinney Jr., 1944, 14 years old, his life was taken. 70 years later, it was vacated because they found out that there was no evidence actually against him. And my heart grieves because of the brokenness of that. And I would invite you, no matter what your background is, no matter what the color of your skin is, or where you're from, to grieve those moments when, when humanity misses out on it. Whenever we miss out on the fact that, that one human life might be more than another, and in Stinney's case, it's very likely that it was because he was a black young man and, and there were two white girls and he happened to be the last one around them that, that people saw. I don't know. I mean, we see this keep playing out in history and it's, it's trying, but the, church, church, the, the gospel of grace is bigger than this as we lean into life together. And, you know, I'm just reminded also that we need to pray for those that God has put in office to rule over us because whether it's a national level or a local level, they're, they're called to work for our good. And it wasn't necessarily our vote that put them into office, although that may be the way it seems and the way that God acts, but it was God that put them in the office. And because of that, there's an accountability that comes with that to behave justly. And so we could look at all the brokenness of that, but some, some ways that the, the sixth command is really speaking uh, about, about murder are things like manslaughter or homicide, which is this idea of the premeditated taking of another life. So, so basically everything that we watch on TV, like that's what he's addressing here, right? All the things that we find entertaining, which is convicting as well, right? Uh, but then there's even like suicide, right? Where someone doesn't value their life enough to keep living, and so they take that. But, but even within suicide, you see instances of, 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 of a, almost like a, a just suicide where, uh, you know, you see in the scriptures a guy like Samson or a soldier that jumps on a grenade to save people. But then you see other situations like Judas, who, who takes his life because of the despairing guilt of sin that he finds in his heart. And it's complicated, right? But the scriptures say we're not called to do that. Or, or instances of euthanasia, which is something we don't talk about a lot, where people get to the end of their life and their quality of life is so low that they medically commit suicide. And that's approved because of the weakest of people as they get older. It's like, well, you know, it's not, it's not worth the trouble that I might cause on other people or... We make these crazy decisions where we don't value human life. And lastly, we see this idea of abortion that we're all really familiar with. And, and I, I tread into this with a little bit of trepidation because 
of what I know about our culture and even this room, that that hits all of us a little bit differently. And abortion is the ending of a human life before birth. And, you know, and I agree with the, the position of the church that this is sin, obviously. But let me tell you what I don't agree with on this. It's when we take the position that we are pro-life, but then in turn fail to apply it consistently upon all human life. So, so we'll value the life in the womb, but when the life gets out of the womb, we no longer value it as much anymore. And, and this happens all the time. So, so what I want to encourage us to do as a church is I'm just kind of tiptoeing into a lot of controversial stuff. Maybe you're offended. I'm sorry. I hope it was the Spirit, not me. But, <laughs> but, but, but here's what I want to challenge us to do as a church, to not just be pro-life in the womb, but to apply that principle of pro-life, whether it's on abortion or suicide prevention, or, you know, you know, preventing crime in our neighborhoods, whatever it would be, to apply it consistently upon all of human life. And that means that, you know what, church, we got to be pro-woman. And, and, and many women have a disproportionate responsibility to care uh, for the children that they have because of what men have amounted to in some of their lives. And it's incredibly burdensome. So it's say, so, so for us to say, yeah, you know, you need to let that child be born, which is what we should say. We also need to say, we need to come alongside of you and help you raise that child. We need to come alongside of you and help care for you as we know that it's going to be difficult for you because your family is not the way God intended it. So the church comes alongside. But, but to fail to understand and to reductionistically say that, that all women that have ever sought to have an abortion, you know, are just murderers and they don't care about God and they're just selfish and they just hate all of human life, is to oversimplify a complex issue, church. Because what we've got to do is we've got to come alongside of women and be pro-women the way that Jesus was in his ministry, how he lifted up and honored them with everything that was in him. The way of Jesus. What if women who thought the only way of escape was abortion knew that they could come to New City Church without being judged and find help in unconditional love? What if that was the type of church that we were? So not only do we got to be pro-woman if we want to be pro-life, but we've got to be pro-deadbeat dad, okay? That's a little harder to do. We've got to be pro the the dad that gave up the, the, the life and, 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 and said, I don't care about the kid anymore. Because he needs grace too. So when is the last time we've entered into the life of men who didn't know how to be a dad and just avoided responsibility and went from relationship to relationship, from city to city, just causing destruction in, in the lives of families everywhere they go? When is the last time we entered in? What does our ministry to incarcerated men look like? Some of the best ministry that I've ever been a part of in my life has been in jails. It's been in prisons in Indiana and Kentucky. Because in those moments, the men that I've had the opportunity to minister to have been most deeply aware of the pain that they've caused in the world and with other image bearers and most open to who God is. And also, we've got to be pro-child. We've got to have advocacy against abortion but also advocacy for adoption, for foster care, for mentoring, for tutoring. Pro-life is not just about what you're against. It's about what you're for. And church, my hope is that we would just get that right. Just wade into the messiness 
of it because it's messy and really murder does happen all around us. It it really does. And and, uh, if you're in a place where maybe you have this pretty simple view of any of those issues, I want to challenge you to make a friend who doesn't look different, who looks differently than you and to talk over these issues with them and hear their hearts because all of a sudden your view of the complexity of the issues will grow, I promise you. And your heart for humanity and, and, and what it means to, to honor all of human life will grow as well. So that, that's kind of some of the ethical things that I just want to toss out there for us this morning. But really what I want to spend the most of my time on is what Jesus spent his time on in Matthew chapter 5. So let's look at the heart behind, uh, behind murder. And it's this right here, the second point. The life-taking nature of humanity. So so we talked first about the design of God to be life-giving. But let's talk about the life-taking nature of humanity. And and as I said before, we're tempted to look at this command and assume that there's distance between us and the command. If you haven't seen it yet, you haven't heard it yet, I'm here to tell you this. There is no distance between any of us and this command. There's none at all. It might be closer than other ones. There's no distance between us and the command. And that's what Jesus was so adamant about in the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to what he says in Matthew 5, uh, 21 and 22. He said, you've heard it said that those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So murder, what is it? Murder is, the, is when we unjustifiably, unlawfully kill someone made in God's image. But Jesus takes it down a level. And, and he, he makes it clear that whenever we assume the role of God like this in our lives, and we, and we do that by assigning value on other people, by, by, by hating them, by speaking ill against them. We don't pick up the sword, we don't pick up the gun, but our hearts are turned against them. He says those are the seeds of a murderous heart. That's where it starts with every murder, he says. In this passage, Jesus uses this word for insults, and in the Greek, uh, the Greek translation of the Aramaic, it's kind of complex, but it's this word raka, okay? And, and, and it, it literally means this. It, 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 it's worse than an insult. We, we know what an insult is. It's name-calling. It's, it's speaking ill of someone. It's, it's, it's not good. But, but raka is worse than an insult. Because here's what raka means. It means you're nothing to me. You're not even worth an insult. The, the, the way in which I value you is so low that I don't even have a word for it. That's what that word means there. They're of no value to me. And that's where the heart of murder begins. Whenever in our heart of hearts, we look at another image bearer of God who has infinite value to God because he reflects God, she reflects God, and we say, you have no value to me. And all of us have done that. And most of us are doing that now. He says that's where murder begins. That's where it starts. And it... The most painful, murderous moments of your story could be traced back to either when someone treated you that way, or maybe you treated someone that way and they paid you right back with it. And you're just not on speaking terms. You just don't look at each other. You just don't respond to the messages. 
This week we were in our kitchen and in our backyard there's a few oak trees and I was just looking at the expanse of an oak tree and oak tree is really remarkable, right? The, the strength that such a small branch on an oak tree has. And I asked the kids, I said, you know, how, how big do you think that oak tree was when it was first alive? And, you know, they knew where I was going. They're pretty smart kids. And they're like, you know, with an acorn, like a really small, really small thing, it was alive then when it was in the ground and it began to be nourished and, and, it, and, it, and, it, and, it, and it was given life. And it was that tiny seed, that acorn is where it first had life. It's hard to believe that something so large and so big and so strong starts out so small. And what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 5 is that the only difference between us and a murderer, the only difference between us and a murderer is that those seeds of hate, of malice, have been watered and fertilized in the heart, in a, in a murderer, someone who actually commits murder, than in someone who doesn't go through with the act. And so Jesus wants us to understand that. Because in our lives, we are either watering and fertilizing and helping those seeds of hate and anger to grow into something bigger than we ever wanted it to be, stronger than we ever wanted it to be, than to putting those things to death through the cross of Christ. He says that's where the heart of murder begins. And there's a life-taking tendency that must be addressed in each of us because of sin. First John, John speaks about this, chapter 3, starting in verse 11, he says this, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain. I find it interesting that this is the example that he uses. Is what, what happens with Cain and Abel? It's the first murder recorded in the Bible. First taking of another life. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. That they respond to you like that, he says. But we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love others. In other words, that's the evidence of a heart that's been changed by God, that you love other people and you don't hate them. That's the evidence that the heart's been changed. And then here's the kicker right here. Whoever does not love abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So John's saying that because we were made in God's image, we should love each other, which means that we don't murder others with weapons or words or thoughts or our heart's intentions or anything like that, but he immediately jumps to that story of Cain and Abel. And I, I want to flip over to Genesis chapter 4 to just give you some context of, of what happened, what God's relationship with Cain looked like before he committed the act. Because God was very upfront with Cain about where his heart was at, where his intentions were at. He warned him. He met with him. He challenged him. And here's what he said. Genesis 4, 6, 7, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Same word that Jesus uses, right? I thought we were talking about murder, pastor. He says, why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? Why do you look so defeated, Cain? Why do you look so lifeless, Cain? And then he gives him the warning here. He says, if you do well, in other words, there's a way out of this, Cain. You don't have to follow through with where your heart is right now. 
Your heart can be restrained even though it's evil right now. There's a way out of this. And he says, if you do well, listen to the phrase he uses, will you not be accepted? This whole thing was an identity thing with Cain. It wasn't just the behavior thing. He's got an anger problem. Let's send him to anger management. No, it was an identity issue. Cain felt in his heart that God didn't accept him, that he wasn't approved by God, and his heart was evil. The scriptures tell us that. And he says, and if you do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is contrary to you. But you must rule over it, Cain. You've got to overcome that heart of death that lives inside of you, that heart of anger and malice and rage and jealousy and all of those things that lead to murder. Cain was unable to love his brother and therefore preserve and celebrate his life because he did not know the love of God. The only way that we value life is when we see that our lives have been valued by God. You cannot give away something that you do not have. And so whenever hate exists in our hearts, we ultimately have this spot in our lives where God's love has not completed us. And so it's a mirror that we look into. That hate that we feel that we extend through our relationships is actually something that is an identity crisis in us. It's a, it's a breakdown of, of who we are. It wasn't just a momentary lapse. It's a breakdown of our understanding of our own relationship with God. God warned him, Cain, you can recover. You can be accepted and loved and right in my sight, Cain. You can, you can get out of this. There's a way. You don't have to give in to the hate that the enemy wants to devour your life with. But in his unbelief and disbelief, he could not see it. And so the sin crouching at the door kicked open the door and overcame his heart and his life and absolutely destroyed him. There's that promise in there. His desire is to, it's contrary to you, to rule over you, to destroy you, but you can rule over it. And that same sin is crouching on Berry Cove Lane at my door, you know. It's crouching on Main Street at your door. It's crouching at all of our doors. And the question is, will it rule over us or will, through the cross, we triumph over death in him? We can become life givers. He says, First John says this, whoever does not love abides in death. So you, you've kind of heard this phrase before, you know, it's a love-hate relationship. And it, it, a lot of times, you know, you might talk about a person like that, it'd be kind of awkward, but usually you talk about it like a, like a relationship with your gym, right? Like LA Fitness, you know. You know, it's a love-hate relationship. I hate going there, but I love the way I look when I come out, you know, whatever it is for you. It's a love-hate relationship. Well, what John is saying is that there is no such thing as love and hate in the same relationship. It's either a love relationship or a hate relationship. Now, there may be pain in the relationship, but love overcomes the hate. Or hate overcomes the love. This is what he's saying here, that, that either you're abiding in love or you're abiding in death. So what would it look like for you, church, to sink yourself more into the love of Christ like God offered to Cain? And to water and fertilize the gospel in your own heart and not pour fuel on the fire of hate that exists within you.
What is it in your life that fertilizes the seed of hate in your heart, of anger in your heart? Is it, is it, is it the media that you consume? Is it the people that you have surrounded yourself with? Is it the lies that you whisper to yourself at night? How can, you, we, how can we heed this warning that sin's crouching at our door and seeks to devour us? But we have the power to overcome through the cross. As you think about the anger and hate that swirls in your heart, the biggest principle that you need to hear today and I need to hear today is this. It's not just them. It's me. It's, it's not just what they've done to me. It's me. It's how I've responded. It's not just what they said to me. It's me. It's how I viewed them. It's not just what they did to me. It's how I view them because of what they did to me. And that reveals really who we are and where we are. But we get to this beautiful news of Jesus Christ, this life-offering sacrifice of Jesus. And it's this last verse we're looking at in 1 John. 1 John 3.16, he says this, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. He voluntarily gave up his life so that we could receive life instead of take life. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. The temptation is to believe that it's the, the situation or the, the, the words that Arib said to me in preschool, you know, or, or, or the, the, the way that the family talks about me when I'm not around, or my coworkers, or my neighbors, what they've said about me and my lifestyle. We, we, we are tempted to think that the problem is out there. I love what John Owen says. He says, look, trials and temptations, they don't put anything into a man. It's not because of what happened to you that you have hate and anger in your heart. It's because your heart is wicked that you have hate and anger in your heart. And we need Jesus Christ to fill our lives with loves. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers, he says. You remember the story of the Apostle Paul. Paul was on, his road to, on the road to Damascus to, to murder Christians. He probably already murdered some. He's at least approving of the death of Christians. And, and Jesus meets him in this vision, right? Absolutely blinds him, changes his life. Poor Ananias has to walk in by faith and hope that Paul doesn't kill him when he's blind and tell him the truth that God wants to use him. That if he'll repent, God wants to use him. Paul repents, he's baptized, immediately used by God. Immediately used by God. And here's what Paul, the murderer, says. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He's given me life. That old murderous heart of mine no longer lives. I no longer feed and fertilize that one anymore. But now I feed and I fertilize and I water those seeds of the gospel in my heart. And it's he who gives me life. And he says, then because of that, the life that I now live in the flesh, in this body, before your face is a church in Galatia. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So for Paul to put down the sword, to put down the hate, to put down the murder, it required faith. And, and you and I walk through life thinking that it's so hard to live this way, to actually love people and see them as made in the image of God. And it's because we think we can do it in our own strength. We think that somehow if we could just Get a little nicer, you know? We get a little more Southern, a little more bless your heart, you know, going on with us, that, that we would be better, right? But, but, but what he says is it requires faith to actually live this way. When I was living 
I was a murderer, but now that Christ is living, I'm a servant. And I lay down my life. Why? Because God loved me when he had every right to hate me. Church, do you believe that? God has every right to hate you because of your heart, because of your sin. He could annihilate us off the face of the planet and be completely justified in his love and his justice. But he doesn't. In fact, the scriptures say, for God so loved the world that he gave, right? He gave life so that we could live and experience his kingdom the way it was always intended to be, which is to be life-giving servants of Jesus Christ. So the, the question is not, do you have hate and anger in your heart? The question is, where have you put the hate and anger that is in your heart? Where's it at? Are we able to say that, that by grace, through faith, that we've, we've nailed it to the cross, that, that it's crucified now? Even though it creeps its head up, like just like it did with Cain, it cre- it's, cr- it's knocking on the door, wanting us to revive it and feed it and fertilize it again. But by faith, we just keep putting it back on the cross. Because we see that Jesus gave up everything so that we could live. And that now because of that, he's given us this power to be instruments of, of life for other people. To give life instead of take life to others. And, and that's just the last thing that I want to share with us here is this. Is that the church has this life-giving pursuit now. As Christians, we now have the power to give life instead of take life. And it comes through abiding in Jesus. In fact, Jesus said this in John 10.10. 10, the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy, but I have come to give that they may have life and have it abundantly. So not just to get by, not just to squeak into heaven as we often think sometimes, but to live abundantly before the face of God as sinners that have been reconciled through the cross. Like that's what God wants to do. And so for us to live as this kind of family, it's going to require the cross in our relationships. Like death to self. And life in Christ, and that requires faith because everything in us says that we, our relationships are the sum total of our behaviors. But through the cross, our relationships are the sum total of his actions and what he's done for us, his grace. So we see, we see people differently. We see them with the potential of redemption, even if they're not following Jesus, because we knew what it was like to walk on the road to Damascus and to be a murderer and to hate and to be angry, but Jesus has given us life. So my question, just as we close, is this, is how can we become the most life-giving people on the face of the planet in the midst of a sinful world? How can we do that? You know, and I think there's one thing, that one trellis that this vine can hang on that's more important than any other, and it's this idea of gospel-shaped friendship. It's this idea of gospel-formed friendship. So what if God's love for us in Jesus could actually lead us to not just tolerate others, but to cherish other people. Here's what I mean. It's, it's, it's friendships that start with the image of God in mind, not the image of the flesh and the hatred and the anger that we have. The, the infinite value of a human life is the first thing that we think about when we see others. What would life like that look like? And for us as a church to water and to fertilize and to feed the love of God in our own hearts so that we could see others that way. and So I think it's a few things. I just want to share a few things here on this. So friendship. Here's what happens in gospel-shaped friendships. The first thing that has to happen is this, is that the gospel humbles us. The gospel makes us humble. So we see that Jesus, as 1 John says, Jesus laid down his life so I could live, and that was what was necessary for me to ever be able to live. He had to lay down his life 
so that I could find life? And now on its face, most of us in the world would say, oh yeah, I got that, good deal, check. No, 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 what if that empowered everything about how you lived with other people? How humble will we let the gospel make us? Now, instead of how proud can we be and still be a Christian, what if we looked at it the other way and said, how humble, how low will we let the gospel make us as we live as the family of God in this diverse and complex world and community? And, and it means that if we say we live by faith and we still have hate and anger, we are not living by faith because the gospel makes us humble. If the, if the cross doesn't humble us, We'll never find these types of friendships. We'll never extend the kingdom in this way. We'll only ever be able to, to, to hang around and have friendships with people that look, talk, eat, and behave like us. Because guess what? It requires no faith to have friends like that. None at all. What requires faith is when you sin against each other and you sin differently than each other and you see that Jesus actually died not just for one of you but for both of you. That makes you humble. And that's the foundation of friendship, this gospel shape. And, and what humility does is it begins to work in us. Paul talks about this in Philippians too. It, humility leads us to proximity. And what I mean by that word proximity is closeness, nearness. Because there's no such thing as friendships that don't have proximity with each other. So, so think about anyone that you consider a, a, a celebrity. Uh, if... if your heart feels like, man, that person is kind of the stuff. Like, I, like I'd do anything to hang out with them. Like, for David Lee, it's like Taylor Swift, I know. So, so you, know, you know, whoever that is for you, right? You'd do anything to be on the front row, like, you know, TS for life. Yeah. Um, whatever it is, think about that celebrity mentality. You want to get as close as you can to that stage, right? Just to be near them. Maybe they'll see you and remember you at another concert that you're going to or whatever. But... But you'll never get close to people unless you think they are valuable. You never will. We get close to people because we value them. We keep ourselves from people that we think are invaluable. Or in other words, we assign value to them and we think, you know, I'm a little better than that. Or sometimes we can have this non-redeemed approach where we say, you know, I'm not even as good as them. I'm just going to keep myself away from them because they're, they're, they're too much for me. Jesus had to lay down his life so that any of us could live. So why then do we feel like we have the, the, the right to take life from others in the way that we see him? It's, it's when in your heart that you see others on the same spiritual plane as yourself, you'll, you'll stop shielding yourself from others. You'll stop shielding your children from others when you believe that other people might actually have something to give you. That it might not be money, it might not be a job, it might not be fame, it might not be status, but they can give you Jesus Christ, church, because they're made in God's image and they reflect him differently than you. And when you believe that, you'll move in closer. You'll extend that friendship. And, and we see, okay, the gospel makes us humble, humility leads to proximity, and proximity leads to empathy. I was in a conversation with someone in our MC this week, and, and, and he said, you know, I work with people who... Who, who, who live, look, believe, and, and here's the kicker, vote differently than me, right? I, I'm like dreading next year, like the election, I'm just dreading it, just because it's just an opportunity, like John Owen said, to, 
to have our hate exposed. And it, I think we're going to do something, some kind of sermon, something on that, just, just to prepare. But anyway, um, the thing that, that this guy said was like, hey, like empathy, empathy for me it, and desire to be close comes because we're near each other. We live in proximity. We work in proximity. Empathy will never come from a screen. Can I say that again? Empathy in your heart will never come from a screen. It has to come through friendship, through relationship, through proximity. I need to see and hear your perspective on life, on family, on values, on finances, on politics, etc. Because if I don't, I may spend the rest of my life murdering people who are different than me. That's the warning for us. And lastly, empathy leads to friendship. C.S. Lewis once said that friendship is birthed when two people look at each other and say, wait, you too? I thought I was the only one. Wait, you struggle with how you look too? I thought I was the only one. Wait, you wonder about the condition of the world for your kids too? That was just me. Wait, you don't know how you're going to pay the bills this month as well? Gosh, I thought I was the only one that struggled with this. Wait, your relationship with your parents is challenging too? It's so good to know someone else is struggling with the same thing. Wait, you just want to be loved by a friend too? It's good to know. Friendship advances the kingdom one conversation at a time, and it starts with humility. Can we be those people, church? Let's pray. Father, thank you for, um, for your warning to us today to not fuel the seeds of hate and anger and rage that so often develop within us, but to look quickly to the cross. Because the reality is, God, most angry person in the world is not me, it was you. Your anger at sin, your wrath against sin. Out of love, you sent Jesus for us. And every time we pick up the hate and we fuel it and we water and we fertilize it, we just put down the cross. So God, we pick up the cross more and live by faith. The Son of God who loved us and gave himself up for us. So we just ask for more faith to live that way. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.